0: Good afternoon. Thank you for making it out on a cold Melbourne winter. Um, yesterday we saw hail. Did you guys see the hail yesterday? Um, I was uh, feeding Micah, and all of a sudden we heard you know the sound of pebbles falling onto uh, our backyard, and I looked, and chunks of ice um, hailing down from the sky. Five minutes, and then it was done. But um, it was very interesting. I was telling Roy's dad that in Melbourne, you can expect anything, um, any points during the day. Today's topic is called, Is Religion a Crutch? And this topic has been chosen because sometimes when people discover that we believe in God, they... Have a reaction. Now, they they might not always display that reaction openly. They'll try to mask it. They'll be like, oh, okay. and Their eyes kind of glaze over. But you know what they're thinking. And sometimes people are bold enough to express what they're truly thinking, which is, how could you be an educated, intelligent human being and believe in God? One person actually said that to me. How can you be an educated, intelligent person and believe in God? And the idea that they have is that religion is a crutch. Now, where does this idea come from? There's uh, several sources, but um, there's two in particular that have been very influential in modern and postmodern thinking. And those individuals are Karl, Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. Let me just read one quote each from what they said. Marx said, religion is the side of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, just as it is the spirit of a spiritless situation. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is required for their real happiness. The demand to give up the illusion about its condition is the demand to give up a condition which needs illusions. In other words, he's just simply saying, look, the ruling class doesn't want the lower class to, to rebel because their conditions are so harsh. And so in order to make them content, in order to make them go through the drudgeries of life, but cope with it, uh, let's give them religion. And if they have this hope of a future life to come, then they'll be more willing and able to go through this life and the harsh realities of the present age. And so he said religion is an illusion, a dream, uh, a coping mechanism, That was invented for people. And this is what Sigmund Freud, the famous um, psychologist, said. He said, religion is a system of wishful illusions together with the disavowal of reality, such as we find nowhere else but in a state of blissful, hallucinatory confusion. Religion's 11th commandment is, thou shalt not question now the common theme of both of these and other atheists and agnostics um, sometimes accusations against Christianity in particular, not just religion, is that Christianity and religion is for the weak-minded. That it's for those who do not question, for those who are naive, those who um, are illogical. But I'd like to kind of go through a few of the arguments and assumptions behind this statement and look at the logical fallacies that actually they portray and also look at how religion is actually um, not only not a crutch, but how we can address our own perhaps misunderstanding of what religion can be. And I want to start by first of all um, acknowledging that religion can be a crutch. Religion can be a crutch. Um, and if we think about it, anything good can be a crutch, just as work can become a crutch. You know, you you go to work to escape perhaps some of the things that are in your life. Um, Or, you know, even a relationship can can be a crutch if you're very dependent on someone to the point that um, you are unable to think for yourself and that person uh, makes all your decisions for you, for example. And religion can be a crutch in the same way. There has been uh, misuse and abuse of religion and of the system of beliefs, in such a way that instead of thinking for ourselves and instead of looking at the reality and the logical, um, objective truth, there can be a tendency of people, and it unfortunately has been the case, that, of course those are the cases that are highlighted in the media, etc., of individuals who instead of thinking for themselves, um, allow someone else to do the thinking for them, and they become dependent on that person or that system to the point that you have cults or situations of um, individuals and whole groups of people um, following a group and either going into suicide or um, really abusive situations and so um, religion can definitely be a crutch but is a crutch really a bad thing? And that's that's the other side for us that we have to examine. And we'll come back to that idea in a moment. But there is a logical fallacy to this statement, religion is a crutch, that I want to first address before we move on. And it's called the psychogenetic fallacy. What is the psychogenetic fallacy? This fallacy is made when you think you know why an argument is being used, associated to some psychological reason, and then assume it is invalid as a result. In other words, Um, just because you think you know why someone is saying what they're saying, you automatically dismiss what they're saying. Um, And this is a fallacy because it is incorrect to think that just because the origin of an idea came from a biased mind, that it must necessarily be a false idea. The why of religion, of why we need religion, should not necessarily negate the what of religion. This is how C.S. Lewis, a Christian writer, put it, and I think he put it pretty well, so I'll go ahead and read it. He says, suppose I think, after doing my accounts, that I have a large balance at the bank. And suppose you want to find out whether this belief of mine is wishful thinking. You can never come to any conclusion by examining my psychological condition. Your only chance of finding out is to sit down and work through the sum yourself. When you have checked my figures, then and only then will you know whether I have that balance or not. If you have the arithmetic correct, then no amount of vaporing about my psychological condition can be anything but a waste of time. If, may, uh, sorry. if you find my arithmetic wrong, then it may be relevant to explain psychologically how I came to be so bad at my arithmetic, and the doctrine of the concealed wish will all be relevant. But only after you have yourself done the sum and discovered me to be wrong on purely ar- arithmetic uh, grounds. Let me make sure I have the same... Oh, sorry. Went a little too soon. It is the same with all thinking and all systems of thought. If you try to find out which are tainted by speculating about the wishes of the thinkers, you are merely making a fool of yourself. You must first find out on purely logical grounds which of them do, in fact, break down his arguments. Afterwards, if you like, go on and discover the psychological causes of the error. In other words, you must show that a man is wrong before you start explaining why he is wrong. The modern method is to assume without discussion that he is wrong and then distract his attention from this, the only real issue, by busily explaining how he became so silly. I know that was a bit long, but let me just break it down. He's, in other words, he's saying just because um, you may have reasons, psychological reasons for why you need something, you shouldn't just dismiss it. You have to examine the actual case to see if it's true or false. I think this is where a lot of um, the idea that religion is a crutch kind of t- takes a bigger um, kind of monstrous proportion than it should. A lot of times, instead of people examining whether religion is true or false for themselves, they look at the people who believe in religion. And I don't know about you, but I am not always going to reflect logical um Christian ideals in my life. And so when people look at at the uh, individuals who espouse Christianity and they start analyzing the individuals and their needs or weaknesses, etc., then they're completely missing the main picture of looking objectively at the truth itself, asking whether that system of belief can stand up to the test of logic and evidence, etc. The other fallacy that is often made is that. Um, there's an assumption that Christianity is merely subjective. And that because it's subjective, there is no way to find out. And that is a major assumption because, um, and I hope you agree with me, there are there are um, bodies of evidence that give us something to, on which to build our faith. In fact, um, in Hebrews chapter 11, there's a verse that says, in verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen we often hear talk about how faith and science for example are contrary and there's this assumption that science is based on evidence whereas faith is blind you know there's this idea that faith is you know this just leap in the dark but it's not the fa- faith that we hold on to faith is actually the substance of things unseen substance means there's something concrete there the evidence of things hoped for so there is this idea that there's enough Objective truth. And of course, there is after that foundation a leap of faith that you might have to take. But the idea is that there is enough for you to have a foundation. And so the assumption that Christianity or religion is a crutch for the weak minded that has no basis or no objective truth is an assumption that cannot actually stand. And there are many uh, areas that you can look into for this archaeology, um, history. Um, anthropology, there's there's many areas of research and study that you can look at and say, yep, historically, these are the objective truths, or looking at the present age, these are the objective truths, and now I have a choice to make about how I take that truth, and what I make with my worldview. Let me return to this idea of the crutch being such a negative thing. I mean, what is a crutch used for? What is a crutch used for? Hmm? To support when you need it, right? Usually when you have sprained ankle or you've done something and you're not unable to walk on your own, you have a crutch to help you, you know, stabilize you. So is crutch a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. So why is it being used with such derogatory terms that the crutch is... Um, A bad thing. Religion as a crutch, as a negative statement, not a positive statement, right? And I think, and I want to propose that this um, negative connotation that we give to the idea of a crutch comes from our utter hatred as individuals and as a society of dependence, of dependence. It's a value, um, in our society at least, it's a value to be independent, to be able to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? That's something that we admire. We like the hero. We like the underdog. We like the one that can make it on their own with no help from you know, family or friends or society. And it's not necessarily that the society looks down on friends and support. But there is this underlying and sometimes very overt um, statement made that it's better to stand alone. And that it's it's better if you can succeed on your own. That that the true idea of maturity and success is when you are independent, right? When you are truly independent, we put this great glory on this idea of someone who can, of um, their own efforts, right? Get out of the whatever situation, whatever circumstance, and of their own efforts, make it. And my question is, why is that such a huge value? in our society? And why is it that we hate depending on needing others? You know, especially in the Western society, I find the idea of individualism and independence such, um, not even just a value, but such a a thing to strive for. And the opposite, that if you fail somehow of reaching that pure independence, that if you actually happen to need someone, let's say you're sick or um, you... Just our financial need, or um, I don't know whatever situation may be, and you actually need someone that we hate bringing ourselves to call, or just to simply say, "I need help." And even if someone, even if you don't even get to that point, if someone offers you help, even if it's the smallest little bit of help, you know, you know, do you um, need some food when you're sick, or do you? Um, I don't know, need a ride or something very small even. We hate, we hate bothering that person. We hate having to to say, yes, I need help. But I want to challenge this thought and this idea because I want to actually propose that when we say, I need help or I need you, it's not necessarily saying, I am weak. It's not just a reflection on, Uh, our value going down. It's actually about the other person's value going up. That when you say, I need you, Hannah, what you're saying is, Hannah, you are valuable to me. You are valuable to me. That you're actually allowing the other person um, to be affirmed in their own right, but also you're affirming the relationship, that I can trust you that I know that the help that you provide to me is not going to be taken advantage by you or by me. There is this trust that is established and built when we actually express our need for each other. And we'll talk about this more during the discussion. But I just wanted to bring that up um, as something that I think is a huge assumption behind the statement of religion as crutch, as crutch being a negative thing. Because after all, when you study about God and you study about our condition, the more we realize we are broken, we do need a crutch, and that should be a good thing, that there is a solution and that there is a savior that can make us whole. But instead of it being good news, we hear that phrase, religion is a crutch, and we hate it, because in our minds, automatically, we don't want to need help. We want somehow to be able to be whole on ourselves, or we even deny that we even need anything. We deny the fact that we're even broken. Here's another... um, well, before I move to the next logical fallacy, so let me just read a verse in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3-6. to 6. This, What Jesus says here is so contrary to society's values. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled." And another word for blessed in the Greek there, it's asher. It actually means, does anyone know? Happy. It actually means happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy are the meat, for they shall inherit the earth. And happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And the idea behind this blessed or happy is that when you realize that you need something, or someone when you realize that you're hungry guess what you can go eat something (laughs) right when you realize your need that need can be fulfilled but when you reject that need when you deny that need then you will remain hungry right you will remain poor in spirit and so what jesus is saying is happy and blessed it's it's a good thing so he's encouraging the very opposite of what our society uh, encourages he's saying look He's turning it upside, upside down and saying it's actually a blessing and a happiness to need and to want and to acknowledge that we are inadequate and that we are in need of God and of each other. The other uh, logical fallacy that we have is that religion is a crutch. And it, it's seen that as Christians, all you know what? That works for you. You need that. Good on you. You do that. You know, you can cope with life that way. And there's this assumption that somehow religion and Christianity is the easier way out, and meanwhile, secularism is actually um, harder. But I don't know about you, but I find the Christian walk and journey with God difficult. Not not because um, not because God makes it difficult necessarily, but because we are surrounded. Uh, by value systems and by individuals and by peer pressure, et cetera. And it's very difficult to stand up and stand by principles and to follow God instead of feelings. To be able to stick to our commitment to God in moments when we actually don't want to at all. There are so many days when you want to just give it up. And every person feels this way. Right? Every person feels this way. Even Jesus felt this way. In that moment where he's like, I really don't want to go through this. Right? Let this cup pass from me. There are, there are moments where every Christian, every follower, every religious person will think, is this really worth it? And to actually have the strength of mind and the strength of character to commit and say, you know what? Even though I don't feel like it, even though I don't see the evidence. I'm going to stick by this because of the objective truth that I have already established as true, that's not easy. It's not a crutch. And I think that the more we as Christians talk openly about the complexity that is our walk, the more people um, in general will be able to understand that religion isn't something that you just Hold on to as a pie in the sky by and by, but that it is something that is an ongoing daily commitment that does require some work and some sacrifice and some difficulties, but at the same time is rewarding and worth it. I think that balance has to be presented well. There was a man named Nebuchadnezzar who had it all. Except for a good name. He had it all. He had wealth. He had privilege. He had position. He was about 30 years old when he ruled the Babylonian Empire. I don't know about you, but that's um, that's a pretty good accomplishment at the age of 30, right? He ruled at that time uh, in his area the most powerful empire. He had a wife. He had um, anything that he wanted pretty much at that time at his fingertips. He didn't need God. And to this man who had it all, who had no need, who you could say was really not in need of religion, so to speak, you know, someone that you would turn to today and say, well, that person doesn't really feel a need for anything. How did this man become a believer of God? I just want to trace a few key moments of his life. Um, And at first, it began very subtly. In the the stories... um, of Nebuchadnezzar that we find, there isn't um, a lot of record in history about Nebuchadnezzar besides the fact that he obviously ruled in, in uh, Babylon, etc. There's a few stories out there. Um, but a lot of what we know about Nebuchadnezzar actually comes from the book of Daniel, uh, written in the Bible. And in this book, um, it goes through chapter, chapter, chapter by chapter, in, through chapter one to four, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, but from Daniel's perspective up until the last chapter. And it's interesting because what happens is Nebuchadnezzar um, goes into Israel, conquers it, and brings back captive um, the best, the brightest, the most good-looking, and young people from royalty, not just anyone, from royalty. So he picks the cream of the crop, brings them over to Babylon, and as Roy mentioned earlier, puts them into the university. And he wants these uh, young men, not just from Israel, but from other parts that he had conquered, to become uh, acclimated to the Babylonian scholarship to their science, to their religion, to their literature. Um, And the Babylonians had a very rich literature and study of astrology, etc. And, you know, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but in Chapter 1, I encourage you to read it in your own time. At the very end of their studies, this is what um, happens. It says, As for these young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Now, did Nebuchadnezzar stop? to ask, why? He found these four amongst all the others who had gone through the training and, and through the course. Not just a little bit, not just double, but when he when says 10 times, that just you know leaps and bounds, right? Leaps and bounds above everyone else. But did he ask, why? Do we ask, Why? Have you ever met individuals in your life who just seem to have this secret joy or this special purpose, um, clarity and insight and wisdom? Have you ever asked them, why? How are you the way that you are? How did you get here? Why do you believe what you believe? Here was a, a subtle way that God brought into Nebuchadnezzar's life. Individuals who believed in God and who would have easily attributed their wisdom to God if given the opportunity to share. Time goes by and God decides that he's going to interact with Nebuchadnezzar a little bit more personally. And so when you read on in in the book, um, he actually has a dream. And it's interesting because for us today, dreams wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't really put a whole lot of stock on dreams. We would just, oh, uh, you know, we ate too much the night before or something like that. But for Nebuchadnezzar, dreams were very serious because in his culture and in his um, in his religion, uh, dreams was a main way that uh, you were communicated to from the gods. And so God chooses to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar through a dream. I'm not going to go into the, in the details of what that dream was, but the interesting thing to note is that when Nebuchadnezzar wakes up, he's troubled by his dream. And he decides, and I think it's a very clever thing that he did. He decides, I want to know what it means. But I want to make sure that what it means, the interpretation of it, is reliable. So I'm going to put a caveat that in order for someone to explain the interpretation to me, they must also tell me what I dreamt. And I'm not going to tell them. That way I will know whether that person truly has heard from God or the gods, or whether they're just making it up. Here's an objective way that he set up a test to see if uh, what he heard would actually be reliable. So he does this, and of course, no one can. And so he's upset, because now he says, you're all frauds, right? None of you um, are truly uh, able to communicate with the gods. You don't know anything. And so he decides to kill them. (laughs) Daniel comes and says, give me time. He goes and prays. And asks God for mercy. And God gives Daniel a vision of the dream and its interpretation. Now he comes to Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to pay attention to um, how Daniel responds to him. This is what he says. Daniel chapter 2, verse 27-30. to 30. He says, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what it will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Notice how Daniel makes it very clear. He says, look, it's not about my wisdom. He says, God has revealed this to me. Here is another opportunity. Here is God once again speaking to to, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And, you know, this dream was not really beneficial to anyone. It's beneficial to Nebuchadnezzar. This dream was given so that God can communicate to Nebuchadnezzar to say, I have a purpose and a plan for you. I want you to know who I am. Now, after something like that, I don't know about you, but he put out that test, right? Someone for someone to come up to me and say, "I know what you dreamt last night." After that person would, you know, gave me in detail exactly what I dreamt, even though I hadn't told them anything, I would be pretty impressed. And I would have to pause and think, Maybe that person, what they claim, is true. It's, it's a pretty good, solid evidence. But Nebuchadnezzar, even though at the time he seems impressed and he, you know, he praises Daniel and promotes him, does not, is not impressed to the point where he says, okay, yep, God is powerful or God is mighty or God is someone that I want to actually acknowledge. So time goes by. And if you go back and read uh, the actual content of the dream, what happens next is even more relevant. But basically, Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge golden statue. And he builds this statue, and he wants everyone to worship the statue. In other words, he wants everyone to worship him. He wants everyone to worship on his own terms. And as the story goes, uh, Daniel's three friends that we saw earlier. um, Those three friends choose not to bow down to this image. And Nebuchadnezzar is very upset. He threatens them and says, I'm going to throw you into the fire furnace. And this is what they say. Daniel chapter 3. He says, is it true? Sorry. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fire furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Right? Who is this God? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, right? If not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Once again, they make it very clear. For us, religion is not a crutch that we just put on when it's convenient for us. They say our beliefs are something that we're willing to die for. Our convictions are such that we know there is no other reality. And they are so sure of themselves that they not only are willing to face death for it, but even to the point of death, they are letting him know about God. Now the story goes that Nebuchadnezzar um, throws them in, and instead of burning up immediately, which they expected, they start walking around in the fiery furnace, and, this, and as nebuchadnezzar is watching you know stunned that they're not dead already he sees a fourth there are three men in there and he sees a fourth figure walking around with them and nebuchadnezzar says with his own mouth that fourth one looks like the son of god now surely nebuchadnezzar must believe that there is a god surely the the, the you know um, witnessing with his own eyes Right? Okay, fine. Maybe the dream was somehow, you know, I don't know. He kind of he was impressed, but he put it aside. He didn't really think about it too much. But surely this, where clearly three people who are supposed to be incinerated are walking around, and when they come out, the ropes that had bound them are, you know, singed to ashes, but they're fine. Surely that, and the fact that he himself saw somebody walking around with them that looked like, in his words, the son of God surely that would challenge his world view. Surely that would make him shift his priorities just a little bit to acknowledge this new truth. But it doesn't. And I wonder if perhaps we too acknowledge a lot of things that we have witnessed in our heads. And so we say things and we think things like God is good. God is important. God loves me. He's coming soon. We need to tell others about him. You know, all these truths that we know. But have these truths shifted, changed our worldview, our values, our priorities, how we spend our time, how we spend our finances, how we interact with others? Or are they just truths that we package away and put on when convenient, perhaps on weekends, and throw out the rest of the time. Because if that is the case, then for us, religion is a crutch. But if instead we face those objective pieces of evidence, slash experience, slash education, the things that we see and bump into and realize and learn, if we take that and allow that to change our worldview so that Christ becomes center of that worldview, so that it impacts and influences everything that we choose and decide, then we can truly say that religion is not a crutch. That like these three young men, that we can stand and say, this is something that we're willing to live for and die for. For Nebuchadnezzar, it wasn't enough to see this with his own eyes. It wasn't enough for him to experience this amazing miracle right before him. It wasn't enough to see uh, three people survive a fiery furnace. And, you know, for us today, it doesn't take seeing something like that. It could even be seeing individuals go through extremely difficult circumstances but come out unscathed, psychologically, mentally, spiritually. That in itself is a miracle. I mean, a few weeks ago when um, Anthony was talking about the, the problem of pain, and I showed the video of Nick uh, Vijudic, I think his last name is, um, the guy who has no arms and no legs. And I remember just watching that video of his testimony, his joy. And when he said the words, I'd rather be born without arms and legs and reach someone for Christ than have arms and legs and not have that person with me for eternity, something like that. And when he said those words, I just think to myself, really? And just seeing that testimony gives me more assurance and faith that if someone can walk through fire of affliction and, and trial and suffering and difficulty and come out unscathed and have their soul and their faith so in love with God, why, surely that's something that, you, we, that has to shake my worldview. Surely that's something that has to challenge my view of reality. But Nebuchadnezzar uh, decides, no, it's not enough. And sadly enough, About 33 years go by. About 33 years go by. And Nebuchadnezzar, um, I don't know, we don't really know the details of his life, but finally it comes to the point where God says, All right, I've tried to put subtly people in your life that you can ask questions about you didn't ask. All right, I'll give you a dream, and I'll give you this opportunity to see that I'm working in history, that I have a plan for you. Okay, you don't want it? Fine. I'm going to give you this opportunity that you can see me physically. Like he physically saw God walking in the fire with the three men. And God finally says, all right, now I'm going to use something else. I'm going to use personal adversity and restoration. And let me just read for you. Um, In the text. And it's very interesting when you read Daniel chapter 4, and I invite you to read it sometime uh, because it's actually in Nebuchadnezzar's own words. It starts out, I, Nebuchadnezzar, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to skip to verse um, 24. What happens is Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And this time it's a dream that is going to happen immediately in his life, not just in history. And Nebuchad- uh, sorry, Daniel comes and once again interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And we're just going to pick up the story in verse 24. He says, This is the interpretation, your majesty. This is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump on the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. And so Daniel interprets this dream. as a dream about what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar if he doesn't change his ways. And Daniel gives this advice to the king. Please, change your ways, change your priorities, change your behavior, change your decisions, change your values. And the sad thing is that Nebuchadnezzar um, doesn't. <laughs> and it says that God gives him another year. Twelve months go by. Verse 29, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I've built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people, and you will live like the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox, and seven times, or seven years, will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven And my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. And there the story ends of Nebuchadnezzar as far as we know. But the thing is, it's wonderful that he he finally came to this point of, of acknowledging what he had experienced and seen. But it took him 40 years. By this point, he's like 70 years old. He's at the end of his life. And you know when King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, you know, all is vanity, all is vanity, etc. And at the very end, he says, you know what? It's good to acknowledge your Creator in the days of your youth. That while you are still young, that you get it. That while you're still young, you're able to look at the objective truth and build your foundation on the truth that God actually does exist. To be able to be open-minded, to explore and say, I'm going to examine the evidence, I'm going to look at the reality that is around me, the history that has been in the past, um, the witnesses and the testimony of others, I'm going to examine it all and make a decision, a conclusion. What's keeping us from doing that? What's keeping us from doing that? I have three challenges that I'd like for you to present today. And the challenges are the following. I believe that one of the things that keeps us from truly allowing God and Christianity, and you can say religion, to change and infiltrate our worldview and and completely seep into everything that we do, that one of the reasons or one of the things that prevent that stumbling block is pride. Like we looked at the assumptions of those who say religion is a crutch, we hate the idea of depending on God and of depending on others. And that um, displeasure or that, um, you know, hatred of, of, of that dependency, you know, can take many forms, can take very many forms. And so my first appeal is this. I have, I like to do practical things. And um, if I can just get Daryl's help handing these out. I have um, a worksheet here that just simply lists different forms of pride. So my first challenge is for you to take this and to actually read through it prayerfully and ask God to help identify areas in your life and in your heart and your character of pride. And that once you have identified those areas, to actually pray through and ask God for help in letting go of that pride. And I believe that as we let go of the pride that is in our hearts and lives, we will truly be able to Examine and let God be God. Um, So many times we can make God a crutch in the sense that we kind of build a God that we like, a God that sounds good to me, a God that is convenient to me, rather than letting God be this big, universal, out of control, in the sense of beyond me, God, who will do what he intends to do in history. And so that is the first challenge. second challenge is this. Pride not only gets in the way of our relationship with God, but it also gets in the way of our relationship to each other. And so my very specific challenge is for us to actually pray for each other. And what I mean by that is this. I don't know about you, but so many people don't like to hear, I'm praying for you. It's supposed to be a good thing. Just like a crutch is supposed to be a good thing. But when someone says, I'm praying for you, sometimes we're defensive. Why? Why? Why are you praying for me? I don't need your prayer. I'm fine, right? And that kind of attitude, once again, comes, I think, from that, um, that desire to be independent, that, that I don't want to need you desire. But I want to, again, challenge you um, that when you ask someone for help, when you ask for someone for prayer, you are, like I said earlier, validating that person, saying that you are valuable to me, your prayers are valuable to me, right, who you are. Um, is, is someone that I, I need and want in my life. And so my second challenge is to specifically ask someone for prayer for an area in your life that you actually genuinely have a need for. Um, not just the superficial needs that you might have, which are very genuine as well, but perhaps even something a little deeper that you really are care, concerned about. To turn to someone, um, you know, link to this later, and say, I actually need prayer about this. Can you pray for me? Will you pray for me? And to actually pray for them as well. And my third and final one is to actually explore the evidence. People will continue to accuse Christianity of being a crutch and will continue to accuse Christians of being weak-minded as long as we continue that stereotype of never questioning, never exploring, never examining the evidence. In order for us to actually get people to go from um, being skeptical to actually coming to the point where they 're saying Oh you know what you have a basis you have a foundation on which you have you believe what you believe it 's our duty to change that mentality by actually being individuals who are willing to explore and be open minded so those are my three challenges and it is my prayer that as we um, work through this um, idea of pride and as we open up to each other, and as we explore who God is for himself and be willing to change our worldview, my prayer is that in the end, Christ will be the center of our worldview. And that in the end, we'll truly be able to testify that God is not a crutch to us no more than electricity is a crutch to a light bulb, as one commentator said. And that we'll be able to say, God is not my crutch. He's my essence. He's my inspiration. He's my life. He's my all in all. And may that be our prayer may that be um, something that we can witness in others as well as we go um, we're going to have a song of um, reflection and after that um, we're going to have our discussion and um, we'll be able to talk a lot more about this but um, you don't have to do this worksheet now but just um, it's a challenge for you to do it at some point when you have free time thank you